Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Vox Tablet. I'm your host, Sarah Avery. Today, a very special piece we're calling Tanya's Story. It's not always so easy to figure out what doing the right thing means. Are you still a good parent if you let your kid eat frozen pizza for dinner more than once a week? Have you tried hard enough to make a difficult relationship work? Often, it's a balancing act between trusting your gut and trusting the norms and advice of the people around you. But what if your instincts conflict with everything you've been taught to believe and what everyone in your life expects you to do? That was the case for Tanya Zidel, a young mother in Montreal. Producers Shay Shackelford and Tori Marlin bring us the story of how Tanya came to understand that doing the right thing can sometimes mean doing everything wrong. A heads up, listeners, the story includes descriptions of violence and a bit of profanity. There are so many toys all over the place. Oh, hey, did you try this one? Is he liking his decay? He loves it. I met Tanya several years ago. Our daughters brought us together. Toddlers who'd glommed onto each other at a playground, becoming instant best friends. We got together every now and then for play dates and to celebrate the girls' birthdays. And you know, remember when we ate all our cookies? It was one of those unlikely and circumstantial friendships that develop among parents in neighborhood parks. Tanya's 18 years younger than me, and we had almost nothing in common. But spending time with her was easy. She was warm and open. She laughed all the time. And we always found stuff to talk about. Also, I have to admit, I was intrigued. Tanya was a Hasidic Jew married to a rabbi. She was intrigued too. And a little nervous about being seen with me, a secular Jew. What if someone drives by and sees me hanging out with this woman wearing pants? You're not religious. People are going to start talking. On several occasions, we ended up spending the afternoon at her place. She lived in a simply decorated condo on the top floor of a new building. No fewer than three mezuzahs were visible from the futon, where we'd sit while our girls ran around in costumes. On one wall of her living room was a giant photo of her and her husband. They're standing on a cliff overlooking the Pacific Ocean, and Tanya's beaming at him. On the opposite wall was a surrealist painting featuring a pink flower, an ancient-looking building, a shofar, and the disembodied head of the late Rabbi Menachem Mendel Schneerson, who was the leader of the Chabad Lubavitch movement and whose followers believe him to be the Messiah. When our playdates ran long and the kids got hungry, Tanya would cook something on the fly or have some delicious snacks at the ready. But when we were at my apartment, I could never reciprocate because everything in my non-kosher kitchen was politely off-limits. Maybe I imagined this, but I swear one time she winced before allowing me to give her daughter a cup of water. At times, I recognized something familiar poking through the cultural gap between us. While she dutifully kept her hair, elbows, knees, and collarbone covered, her clothes always seemed snug in the most flattering places. They would have been right at home in any secular 20-somethings closet. Other times, I'd almost forget how culturally isolated she'd been. But then she'd remind me. Her eyes bugged out once when she learned that one of my close male friends was married and still my friend. And it was like she'd completely missed the conversation on political correctness. She dropped the word retard with alarming frequency. She just kept saying and doing things I didn't see coming. 
But the biggest surprise was the day Tanya mentioned that she was heading to Cuba for a solo week-long beach vacation. Her son was two months old at the time. Sitting on the floor of her apartment, she looked as tired as I'd ever seen her, the way most new moms look. He cries all the time, she told me, bouncing him over her shoulder. It's so hard. I knew it was hard. I was holding a baby of my own when she said it. But leaving for vacation now, with an infant depending on her? I couldn't help but wonder. What the hell are you thinking? It would be another year or so before I knew what Tanya was thinking. And then my heart broke for her. And it all made sense. Tanya grew up in the 1990s in a strict religious home in Montreal. Her parents were raised as secular Jews, but as teenagers, they'd both joined the Chabad sect of the Hasidic community. You're super lucky if you're from the Chabad sect because you actually get to go out into the world and like teach about it as opposed to all the other Hasidic sects where they have the very long side locks and the black hats and they don't venture out of their communities at all to talk to anybody. So Chabad is known as like the coolest of the Hasidic sects. <laughs> there were a lot of rules. Rules that dictate everything from what you wear, to whom you befriend, to what you eat. And Tanya followed those rules faithfully. She dressed modestly. She never so much as talked to boys. She worried about her soul every time she overheard rock music, even if she secretly liked Bon Jovi. And if she realized she'd inadvertently eaten something unkosher, she'd panic and spit it right out. The rules were comforting. There was a system in place, guiding her to lead a good Jewish life. But... It was hard for me because I had these visions of being an inventor or an astronaut or an explorer. And then I wanted to be an actress for a really long time as a child and a singer. But I understood early on that I couldn't be an astronaut because then I would have to wear pants and I'm not allowed to wear pants. And I couldn't be a singer because men would hear my voice and men cannot hear my voice. And I couldn't be an actress because I would have to wear not modest clothing. And so I thought to myself, well... I'm supposed to be a mommy when I grow up and have children, and that's what's going to happen. I'm going to be married to a man with a beard and have babies. When Tanya was 18, she went to California to teach toddlers about Judaism. She had her own apartment and her own car. It was the first time she was out in the world on her own, and she loved the freedom and the religious life. Everything was falling into place. All she needed was a husband, and he appeared. When I saw him, that's it, my knees buckled. Tanya was walking into an office to prepare her teaching materials, and he was walking out. He was a young rabbinical student. And I was in love. I didn't really have a good basis for what a good connection means. All he had to do was stand there and look at me, and I said, I have this weird feeling from him that I feel like I've known him my whole life. And I thought that was like love at first sight. With the help of a matchmaker, they had three dates in quick succession. Thursday, Saturday, and Sunday. He was super charismatic and fun and funny, and he had a lot of energy and was charming. And we just talked and talked and were so attracted to each other. I was just looking for someone that could make me feel loved and special and comfortable and live the life that I was taught I should lead. And I thought he'd be a really good partner. On the third date, he proposed. And Tanya said, of course. 
suddenly he gave me a hug. It was like really intense, chemistry-filled kind of hug. He kind of just grabbed me. I wasn't really ready for it, and I was so uncomfortable with it because that was the first time I'd ever touched a man. So what do you do when you're about to have a husband, but you've never even had a boyfriend? Like most Hasidic brides-to-be, Tanya enrolled in what's known as Kala classes, where she was instructed on how to be a proper Jewish wife and mother. There were even rules about when and how to have sex. It can only be at night. It can only be if you're not wearing any clothes. The man should definitely say a prayer before, wash his hands before. He has to wear his kippah, and sometimes they wear their zitzis. It can only be done in missionary position, and I was taught that if you do it in any other position, all of the different creepy type of children you would make, and even if you didn't actually make this messed up looking child by having sex in a different position, you'd be creating angels that were creepy looking. It was all very scary and overwhelming. There were new modesty rules too. She had to keep her hair covered at all times in public usually with a wig or scarf. And in her own home, there were times when she had to be modest in front of her husband. Honestly, I came back from my Kala classes, and after, like, the first or second one, I was just crying. I was like, I'm getting married in order to, like, be close to someone and have, like, a really intimate, nice little relationship, and now I'm going to have to do all these things, and it just takes all the life out of it. But, you know, they always tell you, well, That's why Jewish marriage rates are better than non-Jewish marriage rates because we do all of these awesome rules and that way they don't get bored of you. If your husband doesn't get bored of you, then you are going to have a happy marriage. And so you're like, well, listen, if everybody else does it and my mom does it and her mom does, you know, and everyone's mom did it without telling us the entire time and this is the big secret, well, I guess I have to keep it too. Two months after their first date, Tanya and her husband got married in Montreal. They began their life together in Brooklyn, Crown Heights. Her husband studied Torah, while Tanya studied to be a medical assistant, and she lived as she had been taught. But it wasn't long before Tanya noticed a disconnect between what she'd been expecting her marriage to be and her actual marriage. Some of the rules she'd learned in Kala classes seemed to have the opposite effect like the ones forbidding physical contact the week of and after her period. It's supposed to enhance your emotional intimacy. It's supposed to be able to, like, help you really talk to each other and connect and discuss your feelings. But I quickly learned that it was really just a time where he would completely ignore me because I wasn't of any use. Eventually, I just kind of busied myself with other things because he didn't really want to talk or connect. And so, it was pretty lonely. She tried talking to friends about his behavior. Everyone kind of normalizes everything. They're like, oh yeah, you know, maybe he's busy, maybe it's frustrating for him. And then like my marriage teacher, my class teacher, she's like, maybe it's because you're not modest enough. And maybe he just shuts down. And if you were more modest, then he would be able to open up to you more and connect to you more. She gave it a try, but not for too long. Because he would, like, point out all the other women around him, and he'd be like, oh, look how hot she is, look how sexy she is. And he would give me messages like, well, 
if you're not going to meet my needs, then I'm going to get my needs met elsewhere. And I don't want you to keep all of these laws. And I said, well, don't you value the fact that I'm modest? And don't you value the fact that I'm so tzniyas? And he was like, yeah, yeah, I really do. But there was nothing he could say that could explain the way he would speak about other women that would make me feel any better about myself. So maybe my modesty was the reason that he was looking at other women and talking about other women. And maybe for the sake of my marriage, I should try to look and dress sexier and God will understand. So for the sake of what's called shalom bias, or peace in the home, Tanya stopped following the rules of modesty so closely. It didn't work. Nothing did. Something was shifting in their marriage that her classes hadn't prepared her for. We fought a lot. In the beginning, he brought home like 10 guests at a time, and I would be like, I don't have enough money for enough food for all these people. And we fought about that, and so we just fought all day about everything. And he would never want to be around me. And so eventually I would be like, why are you going out again? I want to be with you. I love you. I just want to talk to you. And then he would set a timer for like seven minutes. And then he would be like, okay, it's been seven minutes. And jump up and walk out of the room. I think him punching the wall in the bedroom and leaving a mark, suddenly that made me think, hmm, this is the way it's going to be. If we were in an intense argument and I would be standing in his way, he would just knock me off to the other direction. And sometimes I would just be standing in front of the fridge and he would just knock me out from that position because he wanted to stand in front of the fridge. It just went from one thing to the next where he would shove me or he would drag me by my arm or he would push me onto the bed roughly. And I'd be like, well, he didn't hurt me. This is not abuse. He's not hurting me, dragging me by my arm or pushing me or shoving me or lifting me up and roughly putting me in another room. And sometimes, yeah, I I remember being left with a mark on my body and it made me stop and think, oh, well, those abused, battered women, when they have to hide that bruise, like, am I one of them? No, I'm not one of them. After a year in Crown Heights, they had an opportunity to go to Israel to teach travelers about Judaism. Tanya thought the move might be good for them. New York stressed out her husband, and his father had died shortly before they got married. Maybe he just hadn't been in his right mind lately. She was hoping for a fresh start. When I arrived in Israel, I was expecting my period, and it, and it didn't come. And then I found out that I was pregnant. I didn't know anybody there, and I didn't have anyone I could talk to. I didn't know the language, and I was really sick. I was really sick. I couldn't get out of bed. I actually would just lay there in this tiny little cot in our room, and he just would yell at me about how I came there to do community service and how I wasn't doing any service, and he would want me to cook for him and clean for him and, you know, take care of him and entertain him and have sex with him, and I actually could barely move. I couldn't even argue with him because if I opened my mouth, I would just want to throw up because I was so nauseous that I would just lay there and listen until he stopped and then he would leave. 
And then I would just talk to my baby. I was like, well, you know, this is my only joy and my only hope and my only everything. And I really became close to that baby. It was a boy. So he got angry a lot. And like he would push and shove me and scream really loud. And sometimes I just would like run out of the house. And once he shoved me onto the bed and he climbed on top of me. And by this time I had a big belly. I was five months pregnant. And he held my hands down to my thighs with his knees as he was yelling at me in my face like really loud he was jumping up and down on my belly and i remember trying to like wriggle my hands free and i was screaming the baby the baby the baby and he didn't care he was just livid and then finally when he got off I was just afraid to even stand up. I thought maybe I would just start gushing blood. And I was just really scared and I just sat there and I felt to see if the baby was moving. And then I had gone for like a fetal exam and seemed like everything was okay. They're like, your baby looks beautiful, he's perfect. And so I was like pretty assured. But maybe two weeks later I had cooked a huge meal and I was entertaining. And as the guests left and closed the door behind them, I suddenly felt that I was bleeding and so I went to the bathroom and there was huge amounts of blood clots coming from my body so I got into the ambulance I got to the hospital they said that the baby looked perfect and that the only thing that was wrong was that my placenta was bleeding and it started interrupting the circulation to the baby and I was losing a lot of blood and I didn't really understand what they were saying and I didn't know the language I just knew that they were telling me that I was losing too much blood and I should just deliver the baby, but that the baby was too young and he wouldn't survive. They induced me and I started getting contractions and I was just crying the whole night and I was so full of grief because I had worked so hard for that baby. I was so attached to that baby. I would even like sing him songs at night. Once the contractions started coming, I got an epidural and I sang my baby a few songs and I said goodbye to him. And then I delivered the baby. And they put the baby in a Tupperware and they left the baby in the room. And that was it. As I was leaving the hospital, I just felt like my arms were cradling and like they were by my sides cradling, but I didn't cradle anything. I had this huge, huge emptiness. I looked at my body and I didn't have a belly anymore. And and when my husband looked at me, he said, oh, you look so sexy, I wish I could fuck you.
You're probably thinking, this must have been the point of no return. But Tanya did not leave her husband. She wasn't ready. She was in a foreign country without a support system. She was financially dependent on him. And as crazy as it sounds, a big part of her was still trying to figure out how to be a good wife. If I would just be crying in the bed, eventually he would just come over and he would start humping me and initiating sex. And I'd be like, what are you doing? I'm crying. I'm, I'm grieving. Like, I'm sad. And he'd be like, why are you still upset? You're always upset about this. And he'd be like, I love you. This is how I show that I love you. And eventually I would just be like, okay, maybe I'm being a bad wife. And I would just have sex. And after I felt like I'd been like molested, but I couldn't explain why, because he was my husband. There were times, though, in the quiet of her mind, when she'd let herself imagine a different life. I had these thoughts of, I should just leave right now. I don't have any babies with this man. I should just leave. But I think I was in such grief that I was like, well, the closest thing I'm ever going to have to that baby is another baby with the same DNA, with the same father. A few weeks later, they moved to Montreal. Tanya enrolled in nursing school and threw herself into building up the Jewish community. She and her husband started a Chabad house with another young couple in their neighborhood. And nine months after that horrible day in Israel, Tanya was pregnant again with their daughter, Adina. I didn't allow myself to connect to her during the pregnancy. I was terrified. I had convinced myself for so long that I wouldn't have a baby at the end of it. When she finally came out and I looked her in the eye, suddenly I fell in love. And she was my everything. She was my comfort. Tanya was settling into her new role as a mother while managing the household, going to school, and hosting large Shabbat gatherings for the community. Her husband was serving as co-rabbi for the Chabad house while working on his bachelor's degree. He eventually began investing in real estate. In many ways, Tanya was living the life she'd set out to create. But the physical abuse continued. Sometimes it was more than once a week, sometimes it was once a month, and sometimes it was every few months. You know, you're like, oh, it's not a big deal, it stopped, and then if it starts again, oh, it's the last time. You know, it doesn't stop, it gets worse. When Adina was two, he pushed me on the bed, climbed on top of me, and held my neck, and he started threatening that he was going to kill me. While she was pinned down, Tanya managed to call 911 and yell her address. When the police came, she declined to press charges. You can't actually press charges on someone you're married to unless you're ready to leave them. And I was like, well, you know, he knows he has a temper. He's working on it. I should really help him through this. He's a really good person. And wouldn't it be terrible of me to divorce him for that? I wasn't going to press charges. Like, how can I do that to my husband? After he'd be like, yeah, I'm sorry. I shouldn't have gotten that upset. But you should know not to get me that upset. Tanya didn't feel happy but she felt like she was being a good person. She trusted that being a good person, doing the right things, would eventually make her happy. We say the word in Yiddish, Bashart. Bashart means it's God's will and it's meant to be. So she stayed. And after a couple more years, they had another child, a son. 
And so I would always tell myself that this is my job in life. This is my destiny. This is Bashart, that I met him, that we got married. God just wanted these two children. God maybe wants me to help him. And this is my job to help him. And I could change him and make him better. Money was always tight. Tanya and her husband kept separate bank accounts. There was never much in hers, just what she had from student loans and grants. Her husband covered rent and utilities, but everything else fell on her. Groceries, gas, daycare, even unexpected expenses like car repairs. She dreaded supermarket checkout lines. She says she often had to call her husband and ask him to transfer money into her account so she could pay the cashier. Tanya says she always had to beg him for money. She tolerated the arrangement and tried her best to make it work. She was careful with what she spent. Even got a letter from a rabbi so she could shop at a place for low-income Jewish families. Despite her efforts, Tanya racked up non-sufficient fund fees. Like so many things, this led to terrible fights. So she developed ways to cope when her husband's temper flared. For starters, she got out of the way. It's kind of like a fire alarm. He's a six-foot-two monster who's completely out of control, and you don't even hear anything he's saying. He's in such a rage. So until it's a safe situation, we'll hide in the bathroom. And I just grab the kids, and I would just lock the door. And I would put on my makeup and make like everything was okay. And Adina and I would have a conversation. She would be like, why is Papa screaming? And he'd be banging on the door, and he'd be like, open the door, open the door. And she would be like, Mommy, can I open the door? And I said, and she knew that I was serious. I said, Adina, do not open that door. I would just roll my eyes at the screaming and laugh, and I'd try to make her feel like it was just silly. Papa's having a tantrum again. And I would be like, it's not okay to behave that way. <laughs> Every time I would look at the window and think, hmm, I wonder if I could catch someone's attention if I need to. And I would play in my head how I would lift the blinds really quickly and open the screen and take it off and then climb out the window. And then maybe if somebody saw me hanging out of the window, if I really needed help, they would call the police. So I thought I had it all under control. And I guess I saw myself as strong enough to put up with a man who had emotional problems. And I said, wow, I'm keeping my family together and I'm working with him on these problems. Any other woman wouldn't be able to put up with this. But I can. Whenever I saw Tanya back then, she did seem strong and generally happy. If there were signs of marital trouble, I completely missed them. On the few occasions I met her husband, at a birthday party, a Shabbat meal, or their son's bris, nothing struck me as off-kilter. He seemed nice and interested in who the secular friend of Tanya's was, at least as much as a Hasidic man could, given that he really wasn't supposed to be talking much with me. But what about people who were closer to them? People who knew Tanya well? Did they sense that anything was wrong? Early on, Tanya did confide in her parents, but there was blowback from her husband. He would get very upset with me to the point where I would have to apologize to him for airing out our dirty laundry. He's like, 
when something happens between me and you, we can forgive each other. But if your parents find out about it, they're never going to forgive me. So I stopped keeping them in the loop. Occasionally, she would talk with friends because she wanted to know, should I leave him? Is my fear justified? But she never outright asked them. Instead, she dropped hints about what was going on. Enough to feel like she was confiding in them, but not enough to give anyone anything to seize on. It was like skipping a pebble across a pond and waiting, hoping for a ripple effect. But the pebble would always sink. No one pressed for more detail. No one looked appalled. At most, her friend suggested he get therapy. But no one told her to leave him. So she took it as a sign. A sign there was no good reason to leave. That day when we were sitting on the floor of her apartment, when she told me she was going to Cuba, when she confided in me about how hard it was for her after her son was born, I just thought her complaints were the normal post-birth kind. Sleepless nights, constantly being needed, not having any time to yourself. Her son was a hard, colicky infant who had trouble feeding. But what I didn't realize was how desperately alone she felt. There was no break. There was no no emotional support, no mental support. And even more than that, it was, well, Tanya, we're renovating our house. Why aren't you painting the walls? And then there was, but why isn't dinner made? And so then I would try to make dinner. But why aren't you painting the walls? And so literally, I put my child in a car seat and tried to paint the walls with no sleep, with like, my boobs were killing, with the baby hungry. Like, I don't even know how... I was able to function. I begged him. I begged him for help. I would like cry and be like, I can't do this. I'm exhausted. I can't do this. Sorry, Tanya. It's about money. I have to go do business. It's for us. I wish you were more capable. I go all this time without ever having dinner made for me. Do you know how that feels? The baby woke me up all night too. My Lord. Really? Inevitably, I fell right into a postpartum depression. It was so overwhelming and so exhausting that that's when I had this like complete breakdown. And I cried to him and I was like, you don't understand. And super clear as day, I said, I am having postpartum depression right now. I feel dangerous. I haven't eaten. I haven't slept. Literally, my nipples are bleeding. My baby can't eat. Like, I am exhausted And I was like, I'm going to either jump off the porch or I'm going to throw the baby off the porch. I am crazy. I said this in plain, clear words, and it's a crazy thing to say. And he said, sorry, I'm going to go to work. Can't help you. And I held this baby and I had to literally grit my teeth and smile at him and force myself to make eye contact when all I wanted to do was literally throw him. And I just told myself, Tanya, do whatever the hell in the world you need to do so that you don't feel this way. I suddenly decided that I was more important than the baby and I was more important than everybody and I didn't care if dinner had to be made or if the walls had to be painted or if anybody wanted anything from me. I suddenly didn't care because I understood nothing, nothing matters except for me ensuring that my children are safe and taking care of myself 
And that day I hired a babysitter for three, four hours a day. I didn't have money in my bank account, but I didn't care. And I went shopping and I took the credit card, even though I wasn't allowed to. And I hired a guitar teacher and I started learning guitar and I was so excited. Oh, I booked a a trip to Cuba. I had a newborn baby and I booked a trip to Cuba. About a year passed between that trip and the next time I saw Tanya. I was in a park with my kids when she called out to me and it took me a moment to place her. There was something different about her, something I couldn't immediately pinpoint. And then it hit me. I'd never seen her hair before. And there it was, her hair. When I went to Cuba, I sat on the beach and suddenly I got my bearings. I actually was like, that's it. I'm stopping to do what I think is right and righteous and pure and good and religious. I'm stopping to do everything that I was taught. And I stopped covering my hair. And it made me feel really good. And I stopped being so modest and it made me feel really good. And I slowly trained myself to take care of myself and do things that made me feel good. And I would go to the beach and I would go swimming and I would go to the pool and I would do things that aren't very religious. And it made me feel good. I couldn't keep repressing myself with things that were so unnecessary when I already felt like I was drowning. And so if I didn't want to put that wig on or I didn't want to cover those elbows, it was just the last straw. And I was like, I am not covering those elbows anymore. They just don't have to be covered. And that's okay. Being comfortable and happy with who you are and what you do and your surroundings is the most important thing in the world. And suddenly I realized how unhappy I was in my marriage. And suddenly I realized that I didn't like the way he treated me. And I didn't like being in the bathroom and scared. It didn't matter anymore what the right thing to do was. It was what makes me feel okay? What makes me feel happy? What makes me feel comfortable and safe? And I started to grow this confidence of, oh my goodness, I never knew how fun I could be. I was like, I'm awesome, I'm fun. It's just a strange thing, I guess. Especially growing up super religious where you're always suppressing emotions, desires. And then I got married and there was always this, well, you're not important. Somebody else is more important than you. And this was the first time where I was like, no, no, I am the most important. And I don't care if the ice cream I eat is super kosher or just a little bit kosher. I took my first spoon of haagen and I was blown away. It was like this huge orgasmic experience where I was like, this is what I was missing. (laughs) And I ate the entire thing. And then from every day after for like a week, I bought (laughs) Haagen-Dazs. Even in the midst of all these changes, Tanya still had no intention of leaving her husband. They were in marriage counseling, which she hoped would do some good. One day, her husband missed their session. She met with a therapist alone and asked her a question she'd never asked anyone. Should I keep trying? She's like, Tanya, even if he changes, right now he's a 0 on 10 husband and father. What if in 20 years he's a 3 on 10 husband and father? And suddenly it was this moment of clarity. Hmm. This is who he is. It's been seven and a half years. And suddenly I felt like, I was this free bird where I didn't have to tether myself down to my terrible marriage anymore and 
work on it and work on it and work on it and pretend like one day I could make it something that it isn't. Finally, I said, okay, it's over. He said, okay, so move out with the kids. And I said, well, I don't have a penny. I don't have a job. I have a baby. And he wouldn't move out. Tanya wasn't sure what to do. She couldn't force him to move out. Legally, he had a right to be there. So for the time being, they both stayed. Then one night, the tolerable became intolerable. He came home at 9 p.m. and the house was finally clean and the children were sleeping and he started pulling up our daughter from her sleep so that he can give her a kiss. And I had had it. I said, don't touch my child, leave her sleeping. He had a friend with him at that point, another big six foot two kind of guy. And they were packing for a night out to go to a club, packing his nice new suit that he had just spent $600 on while I didn't have a penny in my bank account to buy food. And I, I couldn't take it anymore. And I went crazy. I just went crazy. I said to his friend, I have my underwear on the floor. I have my child sleeping in my bed. You, if anything, don't have to be here. Leave. And my husband turned to him and said, no, you don't have to leave. She's crazy. You can stay here. Tanya grabbed her husband's new suit and threw it off the balcony. Then she grabbed his phone and threw that off too. And he started picking me up, squeezing me really hard. And he started moving me towards the banister of the porch. And in that moment, I just looked down four stories below and I was like, oh, no. No, no, no. So I started screaming and wriggling until finally he dropped me. I ran to the corner of the porch and I started just kicking and screaming, help, help, help. Some passers-by called 911 and the police came and got her husband and his friend out of the apartment. This time, Tanya was ready to press charges. But she was terrified that her husband would return before she could get a restraining order. So the next day, she did something she thought would keep him away. Something that would have been unthinkable earlier in her life. Something unthinkable in her community. She started posting intimate details of her marriage on Facebook. She wrote about what had happened when she was pregnant in Israel. She posted a recording of her husband berating her. She posted photos of him with another woman on his lap. Oh, oh, I also posted a picture of my bank account, which had like $5.96 in it. And I said, it's hard to buy food when somebody else is too busy buying investments and suits. And I got a picture of his bank account, which had about $100,000 in that one bank account. And then the strangest thing happened. I got about 100 Facebook messages of people actually validating my feelings for the first time. People in Israel, people in Florida, people in Australia, people all over the world from the Jewish community started sending me encouragement. They're like, you're brave, good for you. No one should talk to you like that. No one should treat you like that. People delivered meals. People were like, listen, I'm gonna babysit any time. And they really did, and I really needed it. People were like, listen, I'm gonna front $2,000 for your lawyer. Like." People watched my baby so I can actually meet with the lawyers. Oh my goodness. And there was a Help Tanya fund. And it was the most mortifying thing in the universe. But at that point, I had never known such desperation in my life before. And I was 
so thankful. Like there's no word to even be like, oh, I appreciate it. I really got the support that I so badly needed. Not everyone in the community was so supportive. Even after she got a restraining order, there was still intense pressure to stick it out with her husband. There was a really prominent member of the Jewish community who called me and he's like, you know, listen, your husband wants me to create a settlement for you. And I was like, okay, let's do this. Let's make a settlement. And during the process, he's like, you know, Tanya, I didn't ask you yet about reconciliation. Would you be willing to reconcile? I was like, well, you understand that he's very abusive, right? And he goes, hmm, yeah, I understand that. And so I said, okay, so why would I reconcile? And he's like, well, you know, it's always better. Having a happy family life and keeping the family together is so important. And I said, you understand that he pushes and shoves me and I hide in the bathroom with my children when he gets angry. And he said, oh, I'm so upset to hear that. Hmm, so you wouldn't reconsider it? And suddenly I realized that this conversation was really off. Is it really that important to keep a family together under those conditions? But maybe that's why nobody stopped and said, Tanya, you should leave him. Because it's so frowned upon to break apart your family in the religious community. It's all about family it's all about synagogue and going with your father and being with your kids and having family friday night meals and when somebody breaks apart their family people are like oh well did you try hard enough Mm, your poor children what are they gonna do yeah you know my poor children what are they gonna do i do wish that they had a father living in their home but you know what i'd rather have a happy home with just me than a miserable home with both of us Tanya filed for a legal divorce. She also wanted a religious one. After three and a half months and the intervention of some rabbis in New York, her husband agreed to give her a get. It was a three-hour ordeal, and at the end of it, he held the signed paper over her cupped hands. When he let it go, she knew she was free. Whenever I see Tanya now, She always has a story about a new discovery, like wearing jeans or dating for the sake of dating, a new adventure like backpacking through India, or some creative project, like writing pseudo-children's books with titles like Barbie's Fantabulous Divorce Party. Not long ago, I went to Tanya's for Shabbat dinner. She'd invited an eclectic mix of friends, people she'd met in the years since she'd separated from her husband. There were religious and secular Jews, as well as non-Jewish friends. It was like a party. After dinner, we moved to the living room where a couple of guys started playing guitar. Tanya got up and danced. At one point, her friends got her to play a song she'd written. Religion was my life. Religion was who I was. Religion made me a valid person. It made me someone with a purpose in my life. And now religion is a really nice extra. If something works for me, then I do it. And if something doesn't work for me, then I don't.
One of Adina's friends said, uh, is it true you watch TV on Shabbos? And Adina said, yeah, sometimes. <laughs> and so she goes, mommy, am I religious? And I said, well, do you want to be religious? And she says, but I watch TV on Shabbos. Are you allowed to watch TV on Shabbos? And I'll give her the correct answer. And I'll say, no, you're not allowed to watch TV on Shabbos. But you know what? I do it anyway sometimes. And I don't think Hashem is angry at me. I think it's great to have a Shabbat dinner, but... I love not covering my hair and my elbows. And if something is not as kosher as it could possibly be, that's okay because it doesn't define who I am anymore. It hasn't been easy for Tanya. Her divorce and the criminal case against her husband are still working their way through the courts and probably will be for at least the next year. She's had to take in roommates to defray the cost of rent. And she's put nursing on hold to start an online import business so she can work from home. For the sake of her children, her husband isn't entirely out of her life. But it's also for her sake. She gets a break when he takes them, and she occasionally lets the kids stay with him while she travels. Some people might think that's irresponsible. She does worry about whether he's attentive enough, and she doesn't like that her seven-year-old daughter helps parent her little brother at times. But in the end, she believes that they're safe with him, and that has to be enough. Because Tanya needs that time right now to take care of herself. And of course she believes the benefit of that will trickle down to her kids. She's putting being happy above what might seem good or right. That's the one rule she now lives by. She's getting used to following her instincts and trusting her judgment. My favorite example of that is now hanging in Tanya's apartment. When she took that trip to India, she saw two beautifully hand-carved pieces of wood, took one look at them, and thought, Swings! So she brought them home and hung them from the ceiling of her living room. She sits on them sometimes, sipping tea and looking out the window. When I bring my kids over for play dates, they go nuts on them. I stand there, anxiously waiting for someone to go flying onto the hardwood floor. Tanya just shrugs, and I wonder, what the hell were you thinking? Tanya's story was produced by Tori Marlin and Shay Shackelford. It was edited by Julie Subrin. Tori and Shay reached out to Tanya's ex on several occasions to see if he wanted to respond to the descriptions of abuse in the marriage. He declined. Domestic violence is all too common, unfortunately. If you or someone you know is looking for help and is in an unhappy situation, we've got resources on our website. You can go to tabletmag.com and search for Tanya's story. On our website, you can also find a link to one of Tanya's videos. After she traveled to Cuba, she began taking guitar lessons and writing songs. One of those songs is about her experience with domestic violence, and that song is called Painful Love. And if, like me, you were moved by this story, we very much hope that you'll share it far and wide. Of course, also do let us know what you thought of it. Send us an email at podcast at tabletmag.com. Vox Tablet is produced by Julie Subrin. I'm your host, Sarah Ivory. Thank you so much for joining us.